0: <laughs> good morning, everybody. So, we are going to uh, kind of pick up a little bit. Uh, Scott, can you hear me okay? Everything good in there? Uh, from Just continue on from last week um, and the last couple weeks where we're we're taking a pretty careful look as we descend back into this end of Romans 1 um we're looking at the mind and last week we we ended up kind of with two things that were that should be very uh very striking to us one is the gadarene who was sitting clothed and in his right mind uh, just literally yanked out of the bottom of this romans one slide beautiful illustration of just the power of the encounter that with christ but we also learned from paul that, that we have the mind of Christ. And that's really hard to get our head wrapped around, isn't it, when we live the life that we live and the struggles that we have. Um, but, but there's no doubt in Paul's mind <laughs> that we've been given the mind of Christ because we have the Word of God to saturate our lives with. And So I want to just open up with a couple of passages before we pray to just kind of... Um, press this into us a a little bit more and and primarily I want you to take away that God is sovereign in both the blessings and the cursing of our mind and I, I know in much of the the church today that that is just foreign as can be but I think you'll see from these passages in much of our study this morning that that is absolutely true. One of my favorite and particularly when I read it and I thought about the application to train up a child in the way they should go. That implies that there's, there is an inherent ability in that child that God has put there and that part of our challenge as parents is to figure out what that is and then nurture it as much as we can. And I just saw that so beautiful in this passage if you want to read with me at Exodus 36 verse 2. If not, I'll just read it, where we have the, the calling and the preparation for the building of the tabernacle. And as we know, the outside was very plain. The inside must have been absolutely breathtaking. But look at this passage in Exodus 36 two, And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab. Maybe I got that close. And every craftsman, listen to this, in whose mind the Lord had put skill. Isn't that wonderful? He prepared the minds and the hands of these men while they were in captive in Egypt for the day that they would have the privilege of building the ornate tabernacle. And if you read that out, you'll see that that the Lord equipped multiple people with multiple skills to do that very thing. The Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And even in the Old Testament, we see this rather interesting side-by-side, don't we? Where you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. (laughs) Because there you see God had put it in their minds. And then it says, everyone whose heart stirred him up. So what does God's work do in us towards those good works? He stirs our hearts up to do it. And we all of a sudden cooperate with the work the divine work that they're doing in us. That's just precious when you think about it, right? Let me go to the other side. Isaiah 10:5 through 8, a stark passage, particularly in the times we're living in today. And one that that is really takes a little bit of time to read and, and consider. Isaiah 10, verse 5 says, Woe to Assyria. Okay? So woe to Assyria. And then what's he say? The rod of my anger. So there you see it again. Woe to Assyria means they are accountable. <laughs> And yet they are the rod of God's anger. So let's just look at this a little bit more. The staff in their hands is what? My fury. You all know who Assyria is going after here, don't you? Israel. That's sobering, isn't it? Verse 6 Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder. This is his wrath, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But look at verse 7. It's just stunning. You see God using Assyria as an instrument of his wrath. But what does Assyria think? But he does not so intend. That tells you that Assyria had no clue that they were the fury of God's wrath. And don't forget the passage begins with, woe to Assyria. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Just a fascinating look at the wicked, murderous, And if you've ever read about the Assyrians and what they did to the people that they conquered, that was what their hearts were filled with, right at the bottom of Romans 1. And yet, shocking to many, God used all of that as the instrument of his wrath. It's very sobering, isn't it? Proverbs sixteen nine says the heart of a man plans his way, but it is God who orders his steps. Trust the providence that you find yourself in, because we are to plan, we are to think, we are to, 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 to look into the future and think about what steps we're going to take, but trust that God orders our steps in the providence of his plan and his purpose. That's where a lot of the peace and contentment come. In the trials of our life, when we're just asking, what in the world is going on? Right. First Corinthians 2 14 and 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is, listen to this, he is not able to understand them. You see the mind? Utterly blinded by the heart of unbelief. 1 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And this is the work the Spirit of God does in regeneration and sanctification of our souls. It is heart to mind to life work, right? The spiritual person judges all things. But in himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But here it comes. But we have the mind of Christ. And the same question last week, when we, every time we read that passage is, how faithful am I applying the mind of Christ that he's given me? And does my life and my choices and my thinking and my evangelism, does it rise up out of what God has given us as His revelation, His mind, the scripture, right? I think you'll see where this is going, I hope so. But I'd like to just open us up in prayer first. Father, we just come before you and gathered together as saints and We know, to a lesser degree than what you know, that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. Unto good works that you have prepared. And as we can see, even in these passages, there may be times where we have no clue what it is you're doing. That we are called to be faithful and to be wise. And to be biblical in our thinking, to be conformed to our Lord. And so we just thank you for this privilege to gather and inform our minds. To exalt you and to praise you. And to do this always in your precious name, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So now I want to give you another just wonderful example that is something that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and that's, frankly, the messiness of our lives in Christ, the reality of the messiness of our lives in Christ. And I'd like to kind of lift this up a little bit and just see the mystery of God um, working through his church. But look for a minute with me At 1 Chronicles 28 verses 9 through 10. And while you're going there with this thought of this treasure trove of the triune God that we have within us, this mind of Christ, this spirit of God, the, the inspiration behind all of Scripture, but not only all of Scripture, but all of the circumstances over the history of humanity that are captured in Scripture, right? if you were the wisest person in the world would your life be any less vulnerable to sin let's take a look first chronicles 28 verse 9 and 10 and what i want to i want us to just seal together the heart, the mind, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and the encouragement that we have of the hope that is certain because the days are evil, our struggle through that is evil, and there are times where we can really even begin to question all of it. And you, Solomon, my son, says David. I want you to think about David. (laughs) Know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. Good counsel. And here comes the warning. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought, just like the Assyrians, right? Here comes the big if. You seek him, he will be found by you. Our responsibility to seek the God who has revealed himself to us in such glorious ways. But, David says, if you forsake him, Or said another way, if you pursue your will, your way, what's right in your eyes, if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And that's just not uh, empty warning. So he says, just like Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.15, be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary be strong and do it. And let me give you this thought. As new covenant believers. Are we not the household of God? Is this not the temple of God? Right? Same thought that David is giving Solomon here. 1 Kings three five. We pick up more of this unfolding life of Solomon. At Gibeon, First Kings 3, 5, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. Can you imagine that, Ryan? <laughs> Just ask, what, what shall I give you? And we all know Solomon's response. 1 Kings 3.9 Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. Which by the way is the exact same exhortation we have in Romans 12.2 For who is able to govern this your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Fascinating. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. Think about that. Verse 14 goes on to say, here's the warning. And if you walk in my ways... So, despite the fact, Solomon, that I just gave you the greatest mind any human being will ever have, I'm going to warn you. (laughs) I'm going to warn you. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked. Now, there's one, isn't it? How sideways can you go on that? Did David walk faithfully, perfectly? Do we not see his sins as atrocious? The infidelity, the murder, the horrendous effect on his children? If you read the, you've read that, right? You read what happened with his children. Horrific murder, rape. That's a passage that allows you to say with great confidence. Christ is going to finish the work that He began in you. And it is not because you're worthy. It is because He is worthy and all-powerful. And you are justified in His blood and as good as sinless. And there's a perfect example right there that is just kind of tucked away in in the Scriptures. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days, right? And and part of the point there is, how does our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness, and this is both a discipleship point and a sanctification point, how often does our obedience and disobedience to the Lord affect our temporal lives? I know all of us that have discipled anybody who is in a horrendous struggle with life-dominating sin. It has a horrendous effect on their life. And my point is, our walk with the Lord is a constant opportunity to express our love for the Lord And our love and trust in Him so much that we will do what He says over what we think. Which tells you, be careful, not just how you think, but from what basis do you think and then do. Because that is exactly the warning permeating Solomon right here. I'm going to give you the wisest mind. But you better watch as to whether or not you're willing to walk in my ways. And as we all know, you have to ask the question, was Solomon faithful? Ever study the life of Solomon? Just go to Ecclesiastes, right? And look at the end of Ecclesiastes, verse, chapter 12, verse 7. And here's Solomon, the old preacher, who's now looking back on his life, and how hard would it be to look back on that life having had that given to you by the Lord and warned explicitly and yet his reflection on his long life and shall we say by the mercy of God it was a long life. He says this, and the dust, in verse 7 of Ecclesiastes 12, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Verse 8, vanity of all vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. It goes on in verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings, and they are given by one shepherd, and he had a very unique experience of that truth, didn't he? I think he wore those goads out, didn't he? He kicked against them his whole life. And he succumbed to the desires of the flesh. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. It's actually very sobering when you think about it. And here's Solomon's counsel to his child. My son, beware of anything beyond these. And he would add, I wasted most of my life pursuing them. Only to find out that they were absolute. You can say vanity. You can also translate that to our word in our Romans 1 passage, feudal. You chase them and you chase them and you chase them and you catch them and you grab them and poof, they just disappear. They're empty, useless, futile, aren't they? Guilty, right? And he goes on to say, My son, beware of Anything beyond these of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. All those cares of the world. And I, I, I tell you, I, I, I'm kind of a learner and a studier. And it is easy to just get lost in all this stuff. Really to get sideways. And my wife sees it, right? When you begin to take a look at what is going on in this world. And all the different perspectives. Be careful says Solomon. Go to the scriptures and understand and orient everything you're thinking about what you're seeing to what the scriptures teach us so you don't get your loose ends everywhere. So I want to bring us back to the gathering, sitting clothed and in his right mind. And I want to kind of lift this up a little bit because you remember what the commandment the Lord gave him? When he, you could just picture the guy, right? He's just got his arms around the Lord's ankles and says, I am not going anywhere, but follow you. I just want to be with you. What did the Lord tell him? Go and tell everybody all that I have done for you. And we commented this is a man who had lived at the bottom of Romans 1. He had no MDiv, no no theology training, no, you know, tablet with the Bible references on it, no commentaries. All he had was his encounter with Christ. And what's fascinating, if you just trace it out to Mark 7, 31, we see Jesus return to this region, which, by the way, is a pagan land, Right? Why were there herds of swines there? Because there were no Jewish people there. Or let me say it this way. Why were there no Jewish people there? Because there were herds of swine there. Utterly unclean to the Jew. Complete pagan. How did they learn about Jesus? But yet in verse 32, And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And you just can't help but wonder the zeal with which that man just ripped through everybody he knew to tell them all about all that the Lord had done for them. And is that not the first step of our evangelism? With everybody we encounter? Especially those ones that look at you kind of with that funny look and say, what? what is it about you? And it's not usually a nice look. <laughs> Sometimes it's a very endearing look, but it's, what is it about you? Right? Well, let me tell you all about the Lord who saved me from my life. Right? That's what he told the Gadarene, and the Gadarene appears to have been very faithful. Okay, let's come back to Romans. I know we're we're zipping through the curves here. Romans 1, with this thought on the mind, I wanna get us kind of anchored back into this and just work our way down into this passage so we can apply them rightly, not just to the world that is constantly and more rapidly descending into the bottom of this passage, but equally important, as I talk to my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, just how vulnerable we are to them. Because I am quite sure that the man after God's own heart is filled with perfect and pure worship of his Lord right now. And if we knew the life of David without the scripture we have about David, we would look at him and say, there is no way that guy is going to heaven. God is sovereign even in that choice, right? But look at Romans 1. We've become very familiar with it, but I want to start at verse 21, and I want us to think about, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They just flat out will not acknowledge God. Pay attention to that. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Meaning, they willfully rejected him. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Consequently, those two go hand in hand. If you know God, you will thank God for the very breath you took. but they became futile. There's that vanity, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then you go to Romans 1.28, and after this, this giving over, you see, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, since they will not acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, Which means now, they cannot acknowledge God. That window has shut. God has shut the window. And when that happens, God just gives us over to everything Satan wants from his children. And that's when you find this garbage can of behavior at the bottom of Romans 1, 29 through 32. And I, I have to tell you, I've, I've kinda, this is where you'd love to just have a couple hours with John David, right? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4 with me for a minute with this thought in mind. Therefore, having the ministry by the mercy of God, I love the way Paul says that, by the mercy of God, the undeserved gift of ministry. That's mercy. We do not lose heart. Right? Every time you struggle, every time you stumble, every time you fall, every time you doubt... You can say, but God. He started it. I'm a mess in between. He's going to finish it. And that's just that rope, that rung you got to grab hold of sometimes when life is just sideways. With children, with marriage, with life, with work, with the stuff going on in this world, right? That's what you grab hold of. And imagine how precious this was to Paul and how surreal it must have been to have the Spirit of God inspiring these words out of him that were flowing straight out of his heart and his life experience to capture it for us. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways, very important right here. And I fear one of the reasons we see the visible church just laying in a waste bed. It's right here. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Can you imagine how many times just this morning In front of how many countless people God's Word is being tampered with like it is a big ball of yarn you can just form into anything you want. 2nd Corinthians 4 1 through 4. Thank you. But we renounce disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul walked what he talked, and he exalted everyone, encouraged everyone to call him out when he didn't. But look at verse three. Even, Even if our gospel is veiled It is veiled to those who are perishing. And be aware, brothers and sisters, these are the people who will reject the gospel and you vehemently when you are most faithful with the gospel. Because it has just inserted itself right into their conscience. And we have no idea what God's going to do with it at that moment or 30 years from now. Or the next time he brings a godly person into their life and they hear the same gospel. (laughs) Right? These are those good works that we might not even have a clue what it is we're doing on behalf of the Lord. But look at verse 4. And I I have to ponder, I don't know the answer. But look at verse 4. When does this happen? When does this happen? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And it immediately makes you think about Galatians 6, 6, 7, and 8. God will not be mocked we will reap what we sow to the good and to judgment, right? So you see this sequence in these passages. Foolish heart given over to futile thinking given over to a darkened heart given over to a debased mind. A mind that cannot function But, what is most fascinating is, many of these minds, from a secular perspective, are some of the most brilliant minds we know. They're neurosurgeons, they're astronauts, they're, right, all the walks of life, and they're brilliant. So, this debasement is about the ability to acknowledge God. And when you can't do that, none of it means anything. Right? Because is the ability to put, you know, 100 people on a big chunk of metal and fly it across the country not a wondrous feat? Does it not just suggest the mind of Christ is wondrous? In the image barrier to be able to do those kinds of things, but yet the spiritual thing that God weighs is do we acknowledge God as God, as He has revealed Himself, and do we give Him thanks and praise, or do we say, "Eh, that's not quite the God I worship, (laughs) right? So I want to switch while we got a little bit of time left. And I want to just kind of draw off of a couple of thoughts over the last couple of weeks that we've talked about. The object of our faith, to love and trust completely in Christ, which lays bare and naked, or removing the veil of our hearts, Sin. It lays it bare in our heart. With it laid bare, it will then see the fiery dart for what it And is. We're gonna talk a little bit about this language that Paul uses, the fiery dart. Because without it, without this filter of biblical truths and the love of Christ, many of those fiery darts appear to be very pleasing and attractive. Did they not, Solomon, right? I've mentioned a wonderful piece of work called the Armor of God. 400 pages, 800 pages, sorry, 400 years ago. But Gunal said this about the armor of God No one can ever shake off the old companions of lust. Remember when we were saved off of that wide road? What we brought with us? All those old companions. In the justification that God does, those sins have been paid for. In the sanctification, that whole mindset, ideology, has now been given a new heart to think rightly, but many of them walked right into our new life in Christ right along with us. This is why the church needs to be about discipleship. We need to be coming alongside of people, particularly as they express their faith in Christ at the various, because they are a baby, spiritual baby, and are vulnerable. So much so that if you took a baby and you threw it out in the wilderness, that would be the equivalent of what? And the church is purpose to come alongside of those people with sound, deep, biblical knowledge applied to their life in the battle of their own sin, so that we can disciple one another and all those that the Lord adds to the church because they are precious to him, right? And that's what Gernal is really getting at. Those old companions of lust, until by faith he becomes intimate with the grace of God revealed in the gospel. And I know my life becomes more intimate with what God has done to redeem my life the more and more I study Scripture. Scripture. Right? And you cannot help but thank God <laughs> Faith strips away the veil from the Christian eyes so that he can so that he can see sin in its nakedness before Satan disguises it with flattering costumes. You know those costumes well, don't you, Jeffrey? I do. I've watched men. Just devoured by things that they thought looked very attractive at first. Until the room got so dark they couldn't get out of it to save their life. Unless the word of God turns the lights back on, right? I want to help you think about these fiery darts that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.16. Because we're supposed to extinguish them. The fiery dart, if you look it up, it can be an arrow, it can be a spear, it can be a dart. Fiery implies it's on fire. It also could easily suggest it's loaded with poison. I want you to think about that for a minute. The dart or arrow will cause enormous pain when it strikes its target, which is the conscience. And by the way, in Ephesians 6.16, where does that fiery dart come from? The evil one. When it strikes its target, the conscience, it is a crucial moment in your working out of your sanctification. Because the real question becomes will you put that dart out or will you let it have its way? And this is where the poison dart becomes so helpful. because the initial prick of the conscience in the pursuit of that sin, the lust of it, will pale in comparison, Solomon, to the ongoing effects of the poison it produces. Often not even realizing its source, which is when it initially hits your conscience. If it doesn't even phase your conscience, it's just going to take root. And we all know from our relationships how hard it is to pull some of those roots out. Especially when people dig in their heels. This is the poison of the dart. But that initial prick when that dart hits you is the conscience that says, kill it. Right now, kill it. Right? And the consequence, we just load our souls with this poison and all of its consequence... And if we're not careful, we'll be utterly blind to it. Yep. Yeah, it's it's another good analogy of the lure. What does the lure do? Catches someone's attention and then you pull the lure until they can't resist it anymore or you drag them right into the trap you're trying. That is precisely how Satan operates based on the what scriptures reveal to us. He already has his children. He wants to destroy your testimony. Or even your willingness to share that testimony because you're so ashamed of the sins that you're not confessing and repenting of. Right? And I say this uh, with my brothers and sisters, not at them. Right? This is the daily struggle of life. That's why we see the Adams, the Noahs, the Abrahams, the David, the Solomon, the Israel, the Peter, the James, and the John. Their lives were a mess. No editor involved. (laughs) Gurnall says... He would never have left the saints great blots in the scripture open to the inspection of all succeeding generations, please listen, if he had not intended to help tempted souls overcome this fearful temptation to doubt his promise of mercy. So the heavier the war, the greater the thanks for the mercy of God, right? So let's close it in the right scriptures. Look at Romans 13, 11 through 14. And bear in mind, Paul's talking to believers here. Besides this, you know the time. Romans 13, 11 through 14. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. That's the believer. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Why would he say that if it wasn't absolutely essential for us to do? Right? And then let's take a look at some of these. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, not in drunkenness, not in sexual immortality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Boy, to have those two stacked in there with the rest of them gives you some idea of how displeasing all of that is to God. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Kill it the minute it hits your conscience because it's coming. It's not a question of. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Ephesians 2 4 through 7. Just two more. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, hang on that one. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He loved you when you were hostile to him because you are a love gift from the father to him (laughs) made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places boom salvation sanctification the long dirty road but yet in the mind of God you are already glorified brother amen so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we can look at David, we can look at Solomon, and we can say that verse about them. Because if it were up to them, I think it's pretty clear they would have lost their salvation, right? Because there were many periods of their life where they were just loving their sin. Let's finish here and just exalt our Lord. Hebrews twelve two. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. He founded it and he's perfecting it for who Who for the joy that was set before him? Endured the cross that we could add that we deserve despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God To give him all the power now